very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. The Freemasons. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program. For from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence in the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution. 
not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind the Lodge Door on member-supported Restoration Radio. We are your hosts, Dan and Damo. This episode is a members-only episode and is not available for individual purchase and download. However, to receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit truerestoration.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. Hmm. Well, Damo, when did JFK make that statement? Well, Dan, I can state with certainty that it was definitely before he was shot and killed on the 22nd of November 1963. It was an address given before the American Newspaper Publishers Association in New York on April the 27th, 1961, a little over two years before he was actually shot. And the address was called The President and the Press. Mm. Interesting. I mean, it just shows you how much politics has changed since then. And uh, I was particularly impressed by the cultural literacy uh, of um, references to the ancient Greeks. And it's just something that you wouldn't get in the uh, dumbed-down version of politics these days. And the other thing that sort of hits home with me, Dan, is the statesmanship. Mm. Yes, yes. Seems to be someone that can be respected. Yes, and I think it uh, just goes to show the degree of civility also that existed in such an era where, Mm. you know, people... I guess, talk to each other more like adults and uh, less less unhinged than is the case now. Mm. He was, or at least we know, nominally Catholic. Mm. That was his chosen religion, so one can assume that he was certainly baptised, but we don't need to get into that right now because we weren't there and who knows what the real case was in terms of how he lived his life and so on. Mm. However, what I did notice is that he was very America centric in his speech. He was very much about America for Americans. Yes. Whereas you can see today with the incumbent Obama, Mm. it's very much about internationalism, about creating and pursuing that one world system. Uh, Yes. And in fact, um, it was George Bush Sr. who in 1991 referred to the New World Order, quite uh, famously referred to that. So, In fact, the first time I heard him say that, Dan, was on a golf course, I believe. Oh, yes. Uh, I think he was um, on the ninth hole. Right. Putting for a long right. putt. And he mentioned the term New World Order. It was around the time of the war in Kuwait. Yes, that's right, the, the famous Gulf War. Now, listeners, thank you for joining us once again. 
And we're actually taking a different approach today. We're sitting on the sofa, rather relaxed, aren't we, Dan? Yes, that's right. We've decided to go for a more low-key approach this time. That's right. We're going to try something different. We've had some fantastic feedback, and we really appreciate that. Yeah, we thought that today, because we're now heading into um, the actual Behind the Lodge Door book, getting into that today, as we said we would, it's really a discussion, so we're not here to pontificate. No. We love pontificating, though, don't we, Dan? Well, of course. Who doesn't? But, uh, <laughs> uh, Francis loves pontificating too, but there's only a small problem with that. Yeah, it's hard mm. to pontificate when you're not the Pope. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, Dan, what are your thoughts on JFK's speech there? I mean, obviously we're here to talk about behind the lodge door, but there seems to be some relevance, don't you think? Yes, and, and I think it's very interesting because it does actually tie... Uh, back to the themes in this book, it seems that JFK was warning about the influence of a society where people are instructed to swear loyalty to their brothers above all else, including the state that they're supposed to represent. And, of course, the four areas which Paul A. Fisher discusses in Behind the Lodge Door are the religious education issue in the US, opposition to the Catholic Church the moulding and directing of national political and social policy and how the Masons attract their members. But, Dan, getting back to the reason for this discussion, which is, of course, to talk about the book Behind the Lodge Door, we'll go straight to the preface of the book, which is entitled Amazing Discovery. Now, there's a fair bit of information in Amazing Discovery in the preface, but really, what was the Amazing Discovery, Dan? Well, Damo, the Amazing Discovery was that Masons dominated the high bench from 1941 to 1971. Very interesting. 30 years of domination. Mm. 1971 would not have been the... Uh, they wouldn't have called a halt to domination of masonry on the bench, would they? Well, yeah, this uh, author may be uh, correct in terms of numbers, in terms of numerical domination, but uh, I would argue that the masons in that time have changed culture to such an extent that for their dominance to be felt, they needn't actually make up the numbers anymore. It's the Freemasonic ideas that have become mainstream and which will be adopted by nearly all of the judges, if not all of the judges, on the Supreme Court today. Well, that's true. And we proved, didn't we, in uh, show one, the recently deceased... Antonin Scalia, the, the, the most conservative justice, they said. The traditional Catholic. Yes. <laughs> on the High Court, was actually a member of a secret society known as the Order of St. Hubert. Mm. So encourage yes. our listeners to go back and have a listen to that one. Now, the, the Order of St. Hubert, I hadn't actually heard of that, but um, I'm guessing that's not the Masons, but it is nonetheless uh, a secret society that's been condemned by the church. You can't join secret society. That's right. So whether there's a direct tie with Masonry or not, the rule of the church applies, going right back to 1738 under Pope Clement Twelfth. That is correct. Now, Dan, on page 15, and, and for our listeners who have the book, go to page 15, Discovering Masonry's Secrets. By the way, you can purchase the book through... Um, you can. Yes. At a brilliant price for members of $10 US. $10. Yes. Now, it's, uh, this is Paul A. Fisher saying, and I quote, When I discovered that Freemasons had dominated the Supreme Court... My knowledge of the craft was minimal. However, in a general way, the fraternity had left a favourable impression, primarily because a Shriners parade, Shriners, of course, being uh, part of the Freemasonic sect, yes. in Washington, D.C., in the mid-1960s, 
brought much pleasure to my wife and our very young children. So what we have here, Dan, behind the lodge door is the result of the discovery made by Paul A. Fisher in his uh, in his research. And we also spoke in the last show of his history as an intelligence uh, specialist, yes, specialist. Like, in the in the US Army, and so he obviously became very curious and started to look deeper. Uh, as a result of finding out that amazing discovery, that the High Court bench for sorry, the bench of the Supreme Court was pretty much rigged. Yes, and and I think it's very interesting. He's come at it from a point of view of finding out this fact, which may not necessarily be of utmost interest to most people. So what if the bench is dominated by people from a particular organisation? However, he was nonetheless inspired to take a look at, uh, I guess, what he had heard about Freemasonry in the past and the secret nature of the organisation. He was probably thinking, if this secret society is able to dominate an institution like the High Court, what effect does that have on the decisions that it makes? Absolutely. By the way, you can tell this guy was a um, former intelligence officer because um, <laughs> if, if, if you look at the sheer sources that he's quoted, about one-third of the book almost is derived of, um, of his uh, sources. That's right, and we, and we talked... We talked about that in the last episode oh, okay. as well. <laughs> so uh, sure. thanks, thanks for uh, no, reiterating, okay. Dan. Uh, I think it's always good to reiterate things. <laughs> I do it with my children every every day. I think it's good to reiterate things too. That's right. I believe we should reiterate things. Yes, most definitely. I think we've just reiterated that enough. Mm. Quote, after noting that so many justices were members of the craft, it seemed highly important to learn the philosophy and teachings of the organisation. The problem was finding such knowledge when the fraternity is known to operate in secrecy Unquote. That is a good point, and we have mentioned in other shows that we can only uh, discuss what we've found. It is a secret society, but it says, you know, this is the thing about the Masons, we're not a secret society. We are a society of secrets. And, of course, there's a big big difference there, isn't there? (laughs) Yes, well, Damo, I think it's important when you talk about uh, the stacking of the High Court bench. This Mr Fisher does mention in page 14... From the inception of the Supreme Court in 1789 through 1940, there were never more than three Masonic justices during any term except on two occasions. However, suddenly beginning with the appointments to the court by Roosevelt, 1933 to 45, himself an ardent Mason, and continuing through the first three years, 1969 to 1971, President Nixon's first term, although he's not known to be a Mason, members of the International Secret Society dominated the high bench in ratios ranging from five to four, beginning in 1941, to 7-2, to beginning in 1946. And, of course, the domination from 1941 to 1971, obviously easing off after the 70s, but by that time all their um, ideas seem to have been uh, implemented and the Freemasonic ethos nevertheless predominated. So, Dan, with that sort of stacking of the high court bench, it is just unrealistic to believe that the Freemasonic ethos, indeed the the Freemasonic Luciferian religion, would not play an extremely dominating role in shaping America, or as we've mentioned on a number of occasions, the American American experiment. experiment. Yes. Now, Dan, there is something I wanted to pick up on in this, the preface, Amazing Discovery. Mm Mm-hmm where Paul Fisher says the era of 1941 to 1971, which we've just described, was an era when traditional Judeo-Christian values were removed from the curricula of public schools. Now, I know that you have a problem with that term 
Judeo-Christian, Dan, and, and I can understand why. Mm-hmm. I might get you to expand on that, but before you do, you wouldn't believe this, but we actually received some member feedback okay. yesterday, just yesterday. Oh, lovely, yes. And, uh, which is fantastic, and we appreciate feedback from any of our listeners, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent, and, of course, if it was indifferent... They wouldn't bother writing. <laughs> That's correct. Mm. We'll take any feedback, any any comments that you'd like to make, anything that you think is worthwhile being read out on this show. Yes, we'll... even exclamations. Exclamations, that's right. <laughs> and and even if you want to trash us. Yes. We love being trashed. Yes. That's, see, we're Aussies and Aussies trash each other. If we're not being trashed by one another, we start to... We start to get a complex, don't we, Dan? That's right. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. We're a bit weird like that. No, that's right. I mean, look, mm. Dan's a fat little smelly fellow. <laughs> and you're old and boring. <laughs> <laughs> See? And we love each other for it. Isn't it wonderful? Yes. So the listener goes on to say, why do the bishops and priests continually point out the very true violence of the pagan Islam religion but say nothing of an equally or much more terrifying subversive revolutionary and violent religion of... Talmudic Judaism. Now, I, I, look, we're not getting serious here, are we? This sounds oh, a bit serious to me. I hope not. We're only talking about Freemasonry and, you know, world domination and that <laughs> sort of stuff. I, I think this listener might be taking us all a bit too serious. Oh, it's such a trivial subject too. That's just, right. Just roll with us for this one. <laughs> no, but look, it's, it's a very, very good and valid point. And this was actually one of the topics for today. We did mention in one of the shows earlier that if you listen, there was there was one part where we were whispering to each other, Dan. Ah, oh, yes. And yes. we didn't want to give the farm away where we said that it was all tied back to Judaism. Mm. So just want to point out, though, that the bishops and priests who contribute to Restoration Radio, yes, they might discuss Islam from time to time, but it's not something that you're going to hear every five minutes. We all know that it's it's a complete and absolute farce, it's a heresy, and it's just a complete waste of time, but it is causing problems. It's making its impact felt on Western civilization. That's right. But we also believe that it is effectively a tool used by Judeo-Freemasonry. Someone else is calling the shots, pulling the strings, as it were, and all of those strings and all of those shots go straight back to Zionism. Yes, Yes, uh, undoubtedly. And, of course, the um, Judeo-Masons are actually importing Muslims. It's no mistake. They do want to, as the the book says, to create revolution and conflict and, um, you know, importing a bunch of people from an alien culture is a good way to do it. Uh, Here's a a funny little story for you, Dan. I was on the plane, on the aeroplane, coming back from Tasmania a couple of months ago and Mm. I was reading this little book. And this fellow sitting next to me says, oh, that looks like an interesting book. What are you reading there? I said, oh, it's just a little pamphlet. It's called The Ultimate World Order. It's it's called The Jewish Utopia. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, that looks a bit mm. heavy. I said, no, it's pretty light, really. It's probably only about 50 grand. I'm just going to read the front cover to you. It says, The Jewish Utopia. It was discovered by the author of this little pamphlet. 
in an unlisted Jewish collection in the Library of the University of Texas. It is the authentic and complete plan of the Zionists for world domination. Yeah. It pictures the ultimate new social order which the Zionists hope to establish after they have used communism, democracy and a third world war to gain their ends. The ultimate world order is an analysis of the Jewish utopia with photographs and excerpts from the original text. Now, I've read this pamphlet and it is fascinating in, in some regards. It was actually written by Robert H. Williams, who was an ex-Intel chap. Again, there you go. Oh, there you go, military, yes. yeah, US intelligence officer. Yes, we do believe that it's all tied back through to the Zionist Jews. We've discussed things such as the Protocols of Zion and so forth. Oh, the forgery, yes. The forgery, that's mm. correct. Um, some, some terminology that you may or may not be familiar with. The Zionist Jews, they call themselves the righteous and mm. the rest of us are the unrighteous. Or mm. we could, or perhaps the profane. The profane, the there profane. it is. profane. So essentially you are of the righteous and you don't actually have to be a Jew to be a member of the righteous so long as you, you accept what they are achieving and you assist them to achieve it. And we will expand on that and not to suggest that you're jumping the gun, but I'm going to hand it over to Dan now. Dan, why do you dislike the term Judeo-Christian? Well, Damo, my problem with it is that it historically it is inaccurate. I think it uh, is an attempt to conflate Jews and Christians to somehow suggest that they were, what would you say, instrumental in the formation of America and that they are the same. I would characterise it more as a Masonic or Judeo-Masonic kind of mixture in the United States. You had the Christianity of the people, but almost since almost from day one, it's the Judeo-Mason element uh, which has sought to uh, corrupt every single sphere of public life in the United States, as this book gets into. Judeo-Christian um, is problematic, as they say these days. And I think we yes. need to point out that we are not anti-Jew per se. It's important to make this mm. distinction. You see, we're not anti-Jewish race. See, that would be hypocritical because it just so happens that our Lord and Saviour, our King, our God, um, <clears throat> was Jewish. So yes. it doesn't make sense to say that the Jewish race is bad because, let's face it, um, we're talking about the Jewish religion here. Yes, okay. um, and in particular the Talmudic version of it. Now, the other thing to point out, I guess, the difference between Judaism or, or Jews as a race and, and you know, Islam mm -hmm. is that Islam was never a part of the Christian history. Yes, we've got the, the Old Testament, which was derived from Judaism. Islam was a heresy of Christianity started by a violent warlord. And you mentioned uh, the Old Testament Jews, for instance. Yes. When we're talking about the Talmudic Jews, the Talmud is possibly one of the most disgraceful books ever written. Certainly a book that I wouldn't kiss, Dan. No, no, definitely not, Damo. Definitely then I not. wouldn't kiss the Koran either. Yes, and I want to assure our listener who sent us that feedback that just because, you know, we dislike Islam doesn't mean we also don't dislike Judaism. That's <laughs> exactly right. They all oppose the Catholic Church and those who oppose the Catholic Church, we dislike, in fact, we hate with a passion their religion Yes. what it stands for, but we love the sinner and we hate the sin, which is in accordance with true charity. That is, is correct. Taught in, by the Catholic Church. 
Okay, so let's move on. Okay, and speaking of Islam, it just so happens that the first chapter of this book is called Lifting the Veil. (laughs) But the um, interesting thing there, Damo, is that it starts off, this uh, chapter, with a remark from a Masonic author and commentator, Arthur E. Waite, and he, speaking about the 33rd degree of Freemasonry, says it must be confessed that the whole scheme has a certain aspect of conspiracy continually presenting itself as frequently eluding the mental grasp. Now, one of the reasons that uh, we started this presentation with JFK is that he recognised the uh, subversive element uh, within Freemasonry. And this was brought to attention in 1981 in Italy, where the lid was lifted upon a whole network of Freemasonic conspiracy. And in that, it was said that the Freemasons operated as a state within a state. In other words, the whole idea about their loyalty is not to their nation or to anyone other than their Masonic brothers. And that's very important to recognise because institutions that are stacked with Freemasons are stacked with people who are essentially operate above the law. And that was said by Mussolini, Benito Mussolini. He, um, he actually shut down the Masons because he said that Italian Freemasonry was dominated by an anti-national state of mind. The craft obliged its members to deny they are Masons, thus contributing to corrupt the character of Italians, which of course would be an unpardonable thing. Freemasonry used its hold upon the machinery of government in favour of purely private interests and ambitions. There seems to be a common thread with dictators because Hitler also took down all the Freemasons in in Germany. It makes sense to do that because they understand the nature of this subversive organisation. Yes. And as you said when you discussed P2 being like a shadow government, if you like, Mm. and that shadow government is not in the context of opposition to your government, but it is a, it is an invisible opposition. Yes, one but, that you can't vote for. There's well, no one democratic you, input there. And it's one that you can't vote for, but it, it's one that gets in and, win, and, and runs the government anyway. Yes. I mean, these, uh, you know, Hitler, Mussolini and so on, uh, I believe Stalin did the same thing. Oh, he did? Okay. I believe so taking down the Masons because they actually understood the power of Masonry and the influence, therefore. And who can understand threats to one's power better than a dictator? Now, Dan, into Chapter 1 on page 32, you'll find the heading Freemasonry in early America. It says, quote, The first lodge of Freemasonry in America was established at Philadelphia in 1730 and claimed Benjamin Franklin as a member. Good old Benny Franco. Yes, on the uh, on the notes, I believe. That's correct. Oh, yeah. Indeed, many leaders of the American Revolution, including Washington, were members of the craft. And we actually pointed that in the Zero Show as well. And that is not surprising since many of them also were deists, the forerunner of modern day Unitarianism. Now, Dan, Masonry has been active in America since 1730. And I'm moving on to page 33 here where it discusses what was known as the Morgan Affair. And I'll just quote, when the public heard that one William Morgan, a Mason of Batavia, New York, allegedly had been murdered by members of the craft for disclosing its secrets, the outcry was so vehement and widespread that thousands of the brethren resigned from the fraternity. And that's an interesting point, Dan, because we've had some offline discussions about Apex, the Lions Club, Rotary Club, Mm. and so on, all of which are tied in very closely to Freemasonry. Yes. Well, that's the last time I buy a Rotary uh, Christmas cake. They make very (laughs) nice Christmas cakes. I think that's the Lions Club. 
Oh, well, Lions Club. Club. Sorry, <laughs> Lions Club. Hey, that's right, yes. Um, maybe it's that, you know, back in the Zero Show, you talked about the Masonic Fruitcake. Ah, yes, that? that's the one, the, yes, the, the, the fruitcake of, yes. Mm. <laughs> that's the one, it's the Lions Cake, yes. yes. I, wonder if, I wonder how they make that, you know, just put John the 23rd of a cup of flour. <laughs> Which is a lot, by the way. <laughs> Paul the Six, dashes of salt. Uh, anyway. So pink, pink Himalayan salt. <laughs> How much will we sell it for? How much uh, will we sell it? We make we can uh, we can actually bake that cake and sell mm, it. You know? maybe maybe six dollars sixty six. Well, mate, I tell you what, we could sell JP two for the price of JP one. Oh, <laughs> well, anyway, so it talks about the Morgan affair. The reason I bring this up is because it actually shows that many men that enter into Freemasonry don't really understand what it's all about. The fact that in those days so many of them left the lodge mm. because there was more than enough evidence to suggest that his death, William Morgan's death, was as a result of you know, divulging, divulging yeah. those secrets. And so they were, were very much put off by that and that really did hurt Freemasonry in America. Yeah, it wasn't, it, a, wasn't a good PR exercise, really. It resulted in the anti-Masonic political party, believe it or not. That was created. And it states here, in the national elections of 1830, the anti-Masonic political party mustered 130,000 votes. Well, that gives you some uh, idea of the extent to which the Morgan affair really, I guess, created an uproar in the United States. Mm. But we're human beings and we're pathetic because we just forget, don't we? Mm. We don't learn from history, do we? Now, Dave... Page 35 talks about the penalties accepted by Masons in the first three degrees were, if you were an entered apprentice, to have his throat cut across, his tongue taken out by the roots and his body buried in the ocean, fellow craft, to have his left breast torn open, his heart and vitals taken from thence and thrown over his left shoulder and carried to the valley of Jehoshaphat, there to become a prey to the wild beasts of the field and the vultures of the air. Gee, that's a <laughs> that's a fair length to go to just because you're not happy with someone. Yes, um, you're going you're to take the entrails to another country, and <laughs> <laughs> it seems somewhat impractical, uh, 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 really. Well, they, uh, they really do like their vultures, don't they? They're prepared to do that to, to take someone's entrails across the uh, across the globe <laughs> just to feed the vultures. <laughs> Well, they probably well, they are the vultures. Um, <laughs> carrying on, it says, Master Mason, to have his body severed in two in the midst and divided to the north and south, his bowels burnt to ashes in the centre and the ashes scattered to the four winds of heaven and the royal arch to have his skull struck off and his brains exposed to the scorching rays of a meridian sun. Mm. That uh, wouldn't probably fit well in a political advertisement. Uh, <laughs> vote one, disembowelment. <laughs> Yeah, come and join. <laughs> mm. So, Dan, just to go back, this chapter one, Lifting the Veil, it very much is a, an overview, if you like, with some good examples as to Freemasonry in the States. Would you suggest that's correct? Yes, and even like they had the example of P2 in uh, in Italy uh, with Mussolini and the William Morgan case. So I think really the first chapter was dedicated to providing examples as to where the uh, operations of Freemasonry have been um, put out there in the open. Mm. And would you say that Paul Fisher achieved the aim with that chapter? Does I make sense? I think that's a uh, fair... Fair assessment? Fair assessment. So, Dan, moving on to Chapter 2, which is called The Mind of Masonry, 
and it states, earlier in this century, Father Herman Gruber, SJ, a recognised authority on Freemasonry, carefully scrutinised the Masonic fraternity on the basis of its numerous publications and reports. And he found the following. The Masonic program coincides to an astonishing degree with the program of the French Revolution. And which show was it? Show number one? I can't yes, remember now. Where we talked about one. the French yes. Revolution. Number one. Number one, we clearly outlined that that definitely was the case. In fact, I think, you know, in many ways, the French Revolution was Freemasonry's uh, crowning achievement so far. Leading on from the uh, the War of Independence in America, I yeah. think. Yeah, was... although the ideas of, the, of course, the French Revolution were integral in that whole liberty, for equality, fraternity, which was the basis of the US Constitution, mm-hmm. wasn't it? The so. triad of the Enlightenment. Yes, <laughs> It goes on to say, the craft fosters in its members and through them in society at large the spirit of innovation. It furnishes in critical times a shelter for conspiracy. And, of course, the sort of innovation that that they deal in is the sort of innovation that tries to take away spirituality from society. And this was mentioned in the book written by Father Dennis Fahey, called The Kingship of Christ and Organised Naturalism. And I'd just like to digress for a minute, Dan, and talk about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, that's an interesting book. Oh, that's the forgery, isn't it? Well, that's right. It came to light around 1905, and some say it's a forgery, some say it's the real deal. You can get online and and have a read, but look, let's just say it's a forgery, okay? Mm. And, And the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is essentially minutes or notes, if you like, taken from, or at least this is the story, taken from a meeting of the the Zionists, the Zionist Jews, okay? And let's just say it's a forgery. Well, everything that is in there has actually come to fruition, and it's very interesting. The reason I bring that up is to tie that Mm. into the feedback provided by our member where they discussed Judeo-Freemasonry, now, in this book called The Kingship of Christ and Organised Naturalism by Father Dennis Fahey, he provides a contrasting programs. It's, if you go to page 96 for those that have that book, and on the left-hand side, he discusses the program of Christ the King through his mystical body, the Catholic Church. And on the right, he has the program of Freemasonry. So to give you an example, he says uh, this is the program under Christ. Firstly, He says, the union of states and nations must be brought about through the acknowledgement of the one way established by God for the ordered return of human beings to him, the Catholic Church, supernatural and supranational. Now, if you go across to the right-hand column where it talks about the program of Freemasonry, and it says, firstly, the union of states and nations must be brought about through the establishment of some form of naturalistic supranational organisation, oh. political and economic. In other words, the New World Order. Yes. All religions must be on the same level in states, but with discrimination against the Catholic Church. That's the oh, program. Interesting. Now, there are there are six of these, six comparison or contrasting programs, but I'd like to go to the third one here. It says, thirdly, and this is under the program of masonry, marriage must be brought down to the level of a purely civil contract terminable by a simple state formality. Okay, 
are we there or are we not there? Absolutely. The culture of divorce is entrenched. So if you go back to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is supposedly a forged document, I don't know whether it is or it isn't. I haven't done enough research. I have read it. And what I can tell you is that when I'm reading through the program of masonry, okay, I'm reading the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Let's make no bones about it. Judeo-masonry exists judeo christianity when we don't we don't even use the term because the that two terms are, are complete political it's construct. Yes. correct it's just you know to me it's it's blasphemous and sacrilegious to to mm. judeo and christian put together yes i bring this up because i encourage listeners and i know we've actually pushed this book in other programs as well in fact i believe that a chap by the name of michael did an expose of this particular book with teresa on one of her programs and the Catholic home. But it really is a good book to understand how they go about doing what they do. And masonry is created by the Zionist Jews, as is, if you research it, as is communism, socialism, all the isms, or as we refer to in the Zero Show, the bad isms. Yes. Freemasonry is very much tied in with the Kabbalah. Yes, it does mention that in, in Chapter 2 of the book. It's uh, it's all about the Kabbalah. In fact, you may have even heard in this day and age a lot of celebrities allying themselves with the Kabbalah, and one Kabbalistic of the, Judaism. That's correct. And one of the things that you can look out for when it comes to these supposed celebrities, and I can think of people like Madonna, people like even Bill Clinton. Okay? Oh, yes. Just look for the little piece of red string around their right ah, wrist. That's mm-hmm. how you can that's tell, a right? bit of a giveaway. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I've heard, you know, also, you know, such degenerate creatures as Lady Gaga as well and all those all those pop stars, all into Kabbalistic Judaism. All mm. looking for the spiritual edge, perhaps. Yes, uh, not the, and not the spiritual ed- edge from um, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's right. Now, Freemasonry propagates principles which logically developed are essentially revolutionary and serve as a basis for all kinds of revolutionary movements. Some believe that the whole Judeo-Masonry... Uh, axis. Axis, if you like, yeah, that's a good mm. way of putting it. If you relate that to the French Revolution... Yes, and, and I think it's fair to say that historically Jews have uh, profited from uh, revolution and have, I, I guess you could say, taken that as an opportunity to be very parasitic, mm. Mm. That's as is their putting it. method of uh, operation. That's right. Now, the Scottish elite system... which is propagated throughout the world, may be considered as the revolutionary type of French Templar masonry, fighting for the natural rights of man against religious and political despotism, symbolised by the papal tiara and the royal crown. Now, this is an interesting one, Dan, because when you get up to the 30th degree of masonry, Okay, I want to take you through a little ritual. Can I take you through a ritual, Dan? Mm, okay, Dan. Okay, I want to yeah. take you through a ritual. Now, imagine this. Imagine that you have reached the heights of, of masonry and you're, you're about to, let's say you're about to become a 30th degree mason. 30th degree, Okay, let's yes. just pick that one. What happens is you are taken into the big hall, okay, into the temple, if you like, mm-hmm. and on the altar there are three skulls before mm. you. The skull on the right has the papal tiara on it. Mm. The skull in the middle has you know, a monarch's crown on it. Mm. And the skull to the left has the laurel wreath on Ooh. it. Okay? As part of the ritual, what you do is you go up there and you've got like a big bayonet knife type mm. thing, if you like, 
And you are required to yell all sorts of profanities and whatnot and hack at the skull and the, the tiara. Really? Yep, that's Ooh. correct. And you are yelling down with religion, down Ooh. with the papacy, which is a bit disconcerting. So you've done your job on the papal tiara. Then you move to the crown. Yes. Okay. And you start to hack at the crown and the skull and you down with the monarchy, down with the crown. You know, you can see the tie in here. Masonry completely detests the Catholic faith. Yes. The true religion. That is the true enemy, obviously. But it also hates the uh, the monarchy. It hates what the crown represents, the kingship, if you like, but also even the law of the land, which really, mm. if life is great... And we're living in a world of true charity and uh, where we recognise our king and the, the, the state and the um, and religion works together. Yeah. So the church and state work together, I should say. But they don't want that because no. that is tyranny for them, you see. Yes, and, of course, the, the crown represents the uh, – or the, the monarchy, of course, represents the natural order of things and uh, Freemasonry, by contrast um, – is about order through chaos. Now, then, of course, once the job's done mm. on the tiara and on the, the monarch's crown, then the member moves across to the laurel wreath. And do you know what he does before the skull with the laurel wreath on it? Uh, no. Tell he me, Dan. Bows down before it. Oh. Now, here's a couple of interesting connections for you. What is the symbol of the United Nations? Uh, that is that, that grain of wheat, isn't it, the, the around the globe? I think it's that's what it is. the laurel wreath. Oh, is that what it is? Mm. I always wondered what it was. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's the laurel wreath. Now, I could go on and on about this, but for those that want to do a bit of research on this, okay, I'll just pick one, one other thing. What is it that the Caesars, mm. um, let's go back to, say, Diocletian, what did he wear around his head? Oh, the wreath. The laurel wreath. Yes. Because he, did, was, he never rested on it, though. <laughs> Uh, well, Damo, to me, it uh, seems like it represents, you know, smash the uh, smash the papacy, you know, smash the monarchy, worship the forces of organised naturalism. And you said uh, about the United Nations before. Um, yeah, it's a, you know, symbolic repudiation of the natural order and in its place uh, the chaotic Judeo-Masonry order. Have you heard of the Kardashians? Yes, I, uh, I think most people would have unfortunately heard of them. <laughs> Now, they are Freemasonic through and through. In fact, do you know the meaning of the word Kardashian, where that comes from? Uh, no, David, uh, please uh, inform Well, me. do you know what nationality it is? It's Armenian. And in Armenian, it means, guess what? Stone cutter. Oh. Hey? Oh, fancy that, hey? And people might say, well, that's a bit of a coincidence. <laughs> you know, rare, eh? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, it's also a coincidence that apparently on their shows, all the floors are, and I don't even know what they do. I, I just know they're some celebrity or something. I think right? they're big self promoters, basically. Right, okay. They, yes. Well, didn't they have something to do with that Olympian, the American Olympian called oh. Steve Jenner? Bruce Jenner. Oh, Bruce Jenner. Bruce Jenner, who became uh, Caitlyn Jenner. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Is that today or is he back to um, Bruce tomorrow? I think he's to, I don't know how I heard it, but I heard oh, that uh, he's considering becoming Bruce again. Oh, what's happening in the world? Mm. Yeah, well, you know what? But we can play this game, Dan. Mm. This, this, you know, you can't tell me that I'm a man if I say I'm a woman. Mm. And you can't tell me I'm a woman if I say I'm a man. Yes, how brilliantly postmodern. You are whatever you want to be. Well, you know yes. what? I'm going to do I it. I identify as a millionaire. I'm a trans millionaire. <laughs> 
I'm going to start parking in disabled car parks. That's there what I'm going to do. And then when I get out and do 15 push-ups and do a big 10K <laughs> run and come yeah. back to my car, someone says, you can't park there. I'm going to say, well, hang on. You can't tell me that I'm not disabled. That's right. <laughs> I identify as a disabled man. <laughs> a disabled, non-binary. Yeah. Um, in, Gender fluid. In fact, I don't even exist, okay? And you can't tell me that I do. That's right. And if you don't exist, you, you know, the government can't tax you. <laughs> Well, so, okay, so getting back to the Kardashians, right? Yes. Now, the reason I bring this up is because, bit of a, uh, a bit of an example, a, a real-life example, about three months ago, my wife was looking at uh, some propaganda selling some clothing, one of those Target flyers or something, mm. and they brought out this Kardashian range of children's clothing. Oh, children! Children's clothing, Kardashian. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? But here's the, the clincher, which was really, this is what I'm getting to here, yeah. and this ties in with what I was saying before about that uh, that ritual where they, they bow down before the laurel wreath. Right. Now, the pictures in this bit of propaganda, there were children children in, in, yes. in the ad, guess what they were all wearing on their heads? Oh, hang on, a laurel wreath? Every single one of them. Oh, that's probably just a, a very unfortunate coincidence. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. So we could explore that mm. more and more, but I don't think there's any point to it. The bottom line is that it's all tied in. And, you know, we talk about the secrecy behind masonry. I don't know how much of it really is a secret anymore. <laughs> no, uh, especially in the age of the internet, although it is a, a historical curiosity because, mm. of course, for most of our history, we haven't had the internet to bring these things to light. That's correct. Listeners, we would like to remind you that you are listening to Episode 3 on the Behind the Lodge Door series on member-supported Restoration Radio. We are your hosts, Dan and Damo. And today we've been discussing Freemasonry on Episode 3 of Behind the Lodge Door. Now, Damo Father Gruber goes on to say, Treason and rebellion against civil authority are deemed only political crimes which do not affect the good standing of a Mason, nor do they result in the imposition of Masonic punishment. So there's that whole thing, uh, a Mason owes no obligation to his nation or any construct other than Freemasonry. And again, what other nation or what other peoples, if you like, are in exactly the same situation where really it doesn't matter where they live, their allegiance is not to that country. And what do we call them, Dan? Oh, I believe we might call them the um, Jews. <laughs> I think you're correct. And, in fact, Hitler... <gasps> <laughs> better, oh. better be careful. Oh, no. Okay. Mm. Better, better be careful. Okay. Now, Hitler once said, their home is everywhere, but their home is nowhere. Yes, very interesting. Even Henry Ford, I think, himself wrote a book called The International Jew, which talked about the same thing. That's interesting because he was a, an avid Freemason. Oh, was he? Oh, there you go. <laughs> so the book goes on to say, symbolic formulae and symbols are used so the work of masonry may not be hindered. Now, that is an interesting point as well. I mean, we can literally go through every line in this book and comment on it, but we, we've got to be careful because obviously there's a, there's a time situation. But we need to remind ourselves that the universe Universal language really is symbolism. Mm. It sort of transcends all languages. Symbolism, uh, an example would be, 
it doesn't matter what country you're in, mm. you pretty much know what a stop sign looks like. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. Quite and, universal. And, and and probably even more closer to, to what we're talking about, um, churches. Churches look very similar uh, across the world. Well, yes. Well, I'm talking about proper churches, <laughs> not, not those modern monstrosities. <laughs> Disgraceful yes. things that they are. Yeah. But, you know, masonry uses symbolism extensively, and I believe... Probably the best example of that, Dan, is the layout of Washington itself. Now, I won't go into detail, but I would encourage listeners to get online and do a bit of research on the layout of Washington. Now, Demo, moving on to page 40, Father Gruber said, To accomplish their goal, Masons believe the following is necessary. One, the destruction of all social influence by the church and religion generally, either by open persecution or by so-called separation of church and state. Two, to laicize or secularize all public and private life and above all popular education. And three, to systematically develop freedom of thought and conscience in school children and protect them so far as possible against all disturbing influences of the church and even their own parents by compulsion if necessary. Those three points, Dan, really encapsulate how they intend to achieve their goal of taking spirituality away from society. Mm. The first one you mentioned there, Dan, where it talked about the separation of church and state, well, that's why America is the way it is today, if we hone specifically in on America. This is why it doesn't work. When you separate church from state, Mm. then state essentially makes the laws, tells you what's moral, what is not moral, how to bring up your children, whether or not you should immunise them, whether you agree with it or not is irrelevant, so on and so forth. I could go on infinitum. Yeah. We know. And that's, you know, the separation of church and state provides for chaos. End of story. Yes. And and I believe that's why they uh, called it the American experiment, because I think it was, I would say, the first time that a nation has been established Based on those principles, of course, the French nation existed long before the French Revolution, but this is the first time a new country, I think, had been organised around those principles. And so, Dan, we don't have to look too far ourselves. I mean, here in Australia, it's exactly the same. Mm. Separation of church and state. And it's just creating chaos worldwide. And, well, it is a worldwide conspiracy. That's what Freemasonry is. And because the clear enemy of Freemasonry is the Catholic Church, separation of church and state was a requirement. But moving on to point two, Dan, to laicise or secularise all public and private life and, above all, popular education. You got any comment on that? Well, that's definitely been done. The secularisation of all public and private life is um, pretty obvious. There's very little over-religiosity allowed these days in public. The closest you're going to come to that is probably a Christmas Eve carols by candlelight. So so pretty much about all we've got at this point in terms of uh, Christianity. Something that we'll be uh, mentioning throughout the remainder of this series, of course, is the effects of masonry or its aim to get to the youth. Because Mm. if you get to the youth... Uh, and you get to them at a very tender age, you can mould them, you can have them thinking the way you need them to think, and they have done a fantastic job of that. Even in the so-called Catholic schools of today, they're not Catholic, but let's just play the game for a minute. They may call themselves Catholic, but they are more than secularised. They've gone beyond that now. It's just ridiculous. And, in fact, um, you're no doubt aware of opinion polls that show that... uh, On most social subjects, uh, nominal Catholics 
are just as corrupt as the population, even more to the left on uh, some of these issues like abortion and um, contraception and whatnot. Well, it goes, that's right, and it goes on to point three to say to systematically develop freedom of thought and conscience in school children. But this is designed to protect them Mm. so far as possible, quote, against (laughs) all disturbing influences of the church, unquote. That's the thing. Lucifer... Uh, the word Lucifer means light, and they see the Catholic Church or St. Michael as the dark one and Lucifer as the as the light. Mm. Well, there's an interesting hypothesis too in relation to Freemasonry that Freemasonry believes that God is made up of both good and evil. Ah, right. And this is one of the reasons why, and again, if you go back to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, it, where it, it talks about the requirement to debase humanity, yes, to bring humanity into the depths of morality, in mm. other words, to make it so evil yeah. that it forces the hand of the good side of God right. to send his Messiah. Isn't mm. that interesting? Mm. And, you know, this is the Messiah supposedly that the, the Jews are waiting, waiting for. Oh, yeah. But they've got their Messiah today. With yeah. their their economic power, their ownership of the banks, their uh, their ownership of the Federal Reserve in America, some Americans are not even aware of that. The Federal Reserve is not a government organisation; it is no. a private organisation, completely private. That creates money, and the Federal Reserve, the model of the Federal Reserve system, is used throughout the the West. It's, it's very interesting because you mentioned the Jews been very materially successful and rulers of the world and that is the reason that they rejected Christ in the first place because they didn't like Christ's model of kingdom they didn't like Christ's kingdom they wanted him to be a king of the world they wanted to him fight to fight the battles for for them you know? to fight the battles to mm. give them riches and comforts and what stems from that is the fact that we known as the goy or the goyim yes. we're just we're the beasts roaming mm. the earth we exist uh, for the purpose of um to help the jews basically well to serve them to serve them that's to the word them. i was looking for to yes. to kiss their feet okay <laughs> if you do a bit of research you will find that what we are saying is absolutely spot on okay now demo the other thing i wanted to mention going on from those three points Later on in that uh, book and and throughout the book, you'll see references to the fact that um, Freemasons wanted to abolish private property. Now, the thing is that they haven't abolished private property yet, which suggests to me that the debasement of humanity is a precondition for the next goal, which is to to get rid of private property and probably, if possible, to get rid of um, commerce completely. So what do you think the follow-on is from that? What, What would be the reason for that? Well, let's see. Um, I guess people who don't have money are more easily uh, (laughs) led by those who do. (laughs) You know, puts people in a difficult position when they're trying to uh, get their put their next meal on the table, doesn't it? Well, it's all it's all about domination. The the whole plan is about world domination, and Mm. they want to dominate at every single level. I guess in relation to property and the ownership thereof, watch this space. Yes. Yes. All right. Now, Demo, there is this guy called Albert Pike Mm -hmm. who's very instrumental in masonry and uh, he wrote an 861-page book called Morals and Dogma, which is widely regarded as a reference point for the Freemasonic craft. Now, it's very, very interesting because the book talks about freeing oneself from the oppression of Catholic dogma, etc., when 
translating his works, Arthur Waite, a Masonic authority, has written that no person who is acquainted with morals and dogma can fail to trace the hand of the occultist therein, and it is to be especially observed that passing from grade to grade in the direction of the highest, this institution becomes more and more Kabbalistic. Mm. He also mentions in his uh, Morals and Dogma, a very strong animus against the Catholic Church. Fancy that. But he says that the people are a blind force which must be economised and managed to attack superstitions, disposition and prejudice. You'll often hear uh, talk about getting rid of superstitions and prejudice. Which is, of course, referring to the Catholic Church. That is correct. He says the force of people becomes exhausted, in his opinion, by prolonging things long since dead, in governing mankind by embalming old, dead tyrannies of faith, restoring dilapidated dogmas, regilding faded, worm-eaten shrines, whitening and roughing ancient and barren superstitions, perpetuating superannuated institutions, enforcing the worship of symbols as the actual means of salvation, and tying the dead corpse of the past with the living present. But in any event, his ideas that led to the Bavarian Illuminati, the establishment of the Bavarian Illuminati. Um, one thing that is interesting in this book, though, on page uh, 43, talks about uh, symbolism, as we were talking about before, the sun, the moon and master of the lodge, there are three sublime lights of masonry. He characterised the sun as the ancient symbol of life-giving and generative power of the deity. Moon symbolises the passive capacity of nature to produce, that is, the female of the species. The master of life was, emphasis added, the supreme deity above both and manifested through both. One of the things I find very interesting through this, he presents masonry as an organisation which thrives on tension, conflict and revolution. He's talking also about age-old pagan conflict with Christianity, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. The alternating white and black squares on the lodge floor, he said, served to remind all Masons of that constant conflict. The alternating blocks symbolise, he said, the warfare of Michael and Satan between light and darkness, freedom and despotism, religious liberty and the arbitrary dogmas of a church that thinks for its votaries and whose pontiff claims to be infallible, and the decretals of its councils to constitute gospel. Now, what I find very interesting is he talks about the symbolising of Michael and Satan and then light and darkness. Of course, given the fact that the word Lucifer, you know, it means, means the light. Light bearer. Light bearer. Light bearer. Mm. Uh, Lucifer was, of course, God's best angel with the best intellect, the, the brightest angel who fell from grace due to his pride. And it seems to me that um, Pike is carrying on that battle, continuing that battle, uh, talking about um, light and darkness, Michael and Satan, seeing Michael as part of what he would call decrepit old dogma of the Catholic Church, and obviously by, by implication, Satan as the force of light and reason. Mm. Mm. And also clearly shows that Masonry is a religion. And, and I've had people say, oh, but Freemasonry is not a religion. It's more like a big, it's like a big boys club. Well, no, no, it's a religion because it's a bit like those who claim these days to be true Catholics, mm. but also hold that Bergoglio is the true Pope. Yes. Well, if you knew what the church teaches, you wouldn't hold that opinion. Well, no, let's, let's, let's be strong on it. You wouldn't hold that belief. Yes. You can't talk about opinion when it comes to the faith because opinion leaves the door open for the fact that you may be wrong and we need to be absolutely confident that we are 100% correct. Well, I guess in, in that respect, the, uh, the Masons are even more steadfast because they don't talk about opinions. Well, they, they talk about their faith. Well, it is a religion, okay, and those, it's just that you don't know that that is the case. 
you're probably in one of those, uh, you know, uh, for first few degrees or something that will let everyone in. Pike also wrote that the truths spread by masonry are based on Jewish mystical law known as Kabbalistic Gnosticism, yes, which was passed to masonry through the Knights Templar. Now, this gets us into a a new area, doesn't it? Because we haven't really discussed the Knights Templar that much. No, and, and it's actually very, very interesting because it was a precursor to Freemasonry. Well, look, I've done a lot of research on the Knights Templar and I find it rather convoluted. I find it's not clear. Mm. It's not clear. I, I personally wouldn't sit here and say I know exactly what happened. I mean, I know what it was set up to do. Yeah. But then it's... Uh, use by masonry. Now, this is my opinion. Yes. I'm not 100% convinced that the Knights Templar were as bad as they've been made out to be. I'm not saying they mm-hmm. are and I'm not saying they're not. What I am saying is that I don't know. But I know that the Knights Templar mean a lot to the Masons. In fact, the Freemasons have a leadership program for young people. Yes, now, that program, Dan, or the organisation, if you like, of that, that leadership program mm. for the Masons is called Demolay. Demolay. Now, the hey, hey, it's Demolay. <laughs> now, yeah. the interesting thing about that is Jacques Demolay was the last Grand Master of the Knights Templar. He was actually executed in 1314, burnt at the stake. Uh, The Knights Templar was first started with the approval of the Pope and then it says here, the trial of the Templars, which lasted seven years, involved charges that the Templars denied Christ was God, abjured other basic Catholic beliefs, including the sacraments, spat and urinated upon the crucifix Mm. and regularly engaged in homosexuality and other obscene acts. In fact, uh, I guess... Pope Clement V and Philip the Fair, as I said, of France, could not explain to the people at large because, obviously, um, I think they would be scandalised by such things. He Mm, he said, the conspiracy of the Templars against the thrones and the tiara because to do so would propagate the religion of ISIS. Oh, my goodness me. Yeah, not that ISIS. No. (laughs) This is one of the false god ISIS, correct? Yes, yes. Mm. Yes, well, before Jacques de Molay died, this is according to Pike, he instituted what came to be called the occult hermetic or Scottish masonry, the lodges of which were established in four metropolitan areas, Naples, Edinburgh, Stockholm and Paris. These lodges, Pike asserted, were the initial lodges of modern Freemasonry. Uh, Yes, the former Grand Commander of the Scottish Rite also asserted that the secret movers of the French Revolution had sworn upon the tomb of de Molay to overthrow throne and altar. Then when King Louis the 15th, 16th even, of France was executed in 1793, half the work was done, Thenceforward, the army of the temple was to direct all its efforts against the Pope. And that's interesting because that ties in with what we were saying about that ritual mm. where they, you know, they hack at the tiara mm. and the monarch's crown and then they bow down before the wreath, which mm. is, as you alluded, it's all about naturalism and mm. man. And, and of mm. course, you know, to tie that in with Vatican II, of course, the yes. dignity of man. Mm. By the way, do they still hack at the papal tiara in, in the uh, ceremony now or do they not bother anymore? I think all ceremonies are now held in the, uh, the United Nations building because that's where the actual tiara is. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. So, so yes. if they're using the one tiara, there's not much of it left. No. <laughs> Now, Dan, this this character, Pike, Albert Pike, he wrote the following. By what right 
does the savage, merciless, persecuting animal, and he's talking about the Catholic Church. Of course. <laughs> endeavour to delude itself that it is not an animal. I mean, who is this guy? He's, you know, he's. I, I think he might have something, a little something, a little grudge against the church <laughs> somehow. Now, in his commentary on the Council of Kadosh, uh, Pike, referring to the Holy Eucharist, said, The chief symbol of man's ultimate redemption is the fraternal supper of bread and wine. This fraternal meal teaches, among other things, that many thousands who died before us might claim to be joint owners with ourselves of the particles that compose our mortal bodies. For matter ever forms new combinations, and the bodies of the ancient dead, the patriarchs before and since the flood, the kings and common people of all ages, resolved into their constituent elements, are carried upon the wind all over the continents, and continually enter into and formed part of the habitations of new souls, creating new bonds of sympathy and brotherhood between each man that lives and all his race. And thus the bread we eat and the wine we drink tonight may enter into and form part of us, the identical particles of matter that once formed parts of the material bodies called Moses, Confucius, Plato, Socrates, or Jesus of Nazareth. In the truest sense, we eat and drink the bodies of the dead. Mm. Mm. Uh, this is a really good book. I'm seeing this in in the first two chapters. So Dan, over and over again, morals and dogma, or mad if you like, <laughs> emphasises that Freemasonry is a religion based on the occult Jewish philosophy found in the Kabbalah. Full stop. There's another point here I'd like to make, and we're still on chapter two. Pike also makes clear that those in the lower degrees of Masonry are intentionally misled by false interpretations of the symbols of the craft. Mm. It is not intended, he said, that Masons in the blue degrees, which are the first three degrees, or known as the Blue Lodge, shall understand them, but it is intended that they shall imagine that they do. Yes. The true explanations of the symbols are reserved for the adepts, the princes of masonry. So it's deception within deception within deception. And I think we've all heard the stories of as you go further up the chain within masonry, it's like, look, what we told you before, forget it. Mm. Okay, we're now moving on. Here is the real secret. Here is the reality, okay? So we're going to share this with you. And then once you're done with that level, you move to the next level, it's the same thing, on and on and on. And I wonder if perhaps from the point of view of curiosity, whether or not that is a key driver for some of these people to keep them going through that process. What do you think? Uh, more than likely, I would suggest. You know, uh, I think that's probably the natural inclination of, of, of people to want to climb a ladder mm. in that regard. Now, this Albert Pike, Dan, mm. the only monument to a Confederate general in the nation's capital stands on public property between the US Department of Labor building and the city's municipal building on D Street. Mm. It's a statue of Albert Pike. Oh. The grand philosopher of Scotland Masonry. Okay, the new. Who was indicted for treason for his activities during the Civil War. Oh, there we go. There we go. But there we go. But treason is not a problem because um, it is only a political crime which does not affect the good standing of a Mason. Oh. And I bet you those who put the statue up uh, were also good Masons. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. When they get cold at night, do you think that they're happy to burn the American flag? Oh, most definitely. Clad in a frock, coat and waistcoat, wearing shoulder-length hair, the bewhiskered pike is depicted holding in his left hand a volume of morals and dogma. 
his great Masonic treatise. Can people not see it? Yeah. Mm. I, I would encourage any listener, and we have said this throughout the series and will continue to do so, do your own research on you know, people like Pike and gain an understanding of the philosophies that they're pushing, what their rituals mean. There really is enough information on the internet now to get a good understanding. But we did allude in an earlier program that you just need to... Now, here's a, here's a wonderful Bergoglio word. Dan. Oh, yes. Discern. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Discern between that which is false and that which is true, which is not necessarily easy to do. But by no. all means, use this show as, as a bit of a compass for that. Yes, there's so many resources out there and so much interesting information. This is only a starting point mm. for your journey into the dark world of Freemasonry. Now, Dan, I might just ask you to read the paragraph at the top of page 49. There, I think our listeners okay. might find this interesting. Chiselled into the statue's pedestal are words which purport to describe the man's abilities. Poet, author, jurist, orator, philosopher, philanthropist, scholar and soldier. The sculpture gives no indication that Pike, as a Confederate general, was commander of a band of Indians who scalped and killed a number of Union soldiers during the Battle of Pea Ridge, Arkansas. Hence, treason. treason. Now, military records show that Indians at the Battle of Pea Ridge conducted warfare with barbarity. Adjutant John W. Noble of the 3rd Iowa Regiment said... From personal inspection, I discovered that eight of the men had been scalped. Now, Adjutant Noble added that the bodies had been exhumed and many showed unmistakable evidence of having been murdered after they were wounded. That's on page 49, second chapter. Mm. It's a good one to read because it gives you a great understanding of this character of Pike, who should have been up for treason, played a role... A you know, a barbaric role in the scalping of American soldiers. Yes, he represented the Indian tribes against, or commanded even the Indian tribes, as they said. He commanded 3,000 Indians against the Americans. And, of course, to go back, the only monument to a Confederate general in the nation's capital is to... Albert Pike. Albert Pike, the treasonous. Oh, who's that at the door? Oh, it's Jimmy. How's it going, guys? Oh, hey, how you going? Good yes. to see you. Nice to see hey, you. Hey, Jimmy, yes. how are you? Good, good uh, to see you. Yeah, we're just talking about Freemasonry. So uh, what, what do you know about Freemasonry? Nothing. Okay. Oh. Hmm. Oh. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, no good worries. to see you, guys. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for dropping in, mate. No worries. All, All right. So, Dan, we're down to the last part of Chapter 2. On page 50, the heading... Other Integral Characteristics of Masonry. And it states, mm. There are other distasteful characteristics integral to Masonry which are little noted but deserve mention. And the first one here is prejudice. And I'll quote, It says, Masonry's landmarks have been described by a craftsman as those peculiar marks of distinction by which we are separated from the profane world and by which we are enabled to designate our inheritance as the sons of light. So the Masons believe that, I guess, they're, they're it. They're the bee's knees. We are the profane. Mm. So if you're not a member of the Brotherhood, 
You are, well, let's use another term. You are the goyim. Yes, you're just less of a human. Exactly. And leading on to that, of course, on page 52, they do go on about the historical treatment of blacks who wanted to join the Freemasonry. They, they said that they had their own black Masonic organisation, uh, which they called the um, Prince Hall Masons. Now, this was, uh, of course, it follows that this um, gentleman uh, who claimed that he was initiated into an English army lodge in Boston, the Grand Commander noted that all regular Grand Lodges in the United States do not recognise any coloured or Negro masonry. What this book really goes on to say is to what length Masons had gone to to exclude blacks from their organisation. Yeah, well, according to some press reports, it states here, Michelle Palmer, whose father is white and mother is black, had been invited to join the Rainbow Chapter in Indianola, Iowa, Mm. and was approved by the local assembly in October of that particular year. However, officials at the Rainbow's international headquarters at McAllister, Oklahoma, ruled that all 136 Rainbow assemblies in Iowa must disband by the end of the year because they did not follow rules and regulations. And that is, of course, to do with having coloured people Mm. in the lodge. Uh, In 1947... Cowles, a Mason, John Cowles, Grand Commander, who was addressing this subject, said, it's not because of their colour that blacks are not allowed into the lodges of regular masonry. Rather, he says, it is a general characteristics of the race as it exists in this country and the apparent incompatible social reactions of the two races. So in other words, it's not because they're black, it's because they, they do things that make them different to white people. And adding insult to injury, the State Supreme Court of New Jersey decided in 1986 that a low-level state court employee must step down as an officer of a local NAACP, which is the National Women's... No, it's the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. (laughs) Sorry. Yes. (laughs) Of a local NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People... Uh, to step down from that chapter in order to avoid the appearance of judicial involvement in political disputes. And I don't know why I just read that out because that has no bearing whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) You've got to try it. You've got to try (laughs) Yes. um, Well, anyway, um, just the the final thing on on the, the race issue, I think it says, earlier the Maryland Senate enacted legislation to deny a tax exemption to the Burning Tree Country Club because it discriminates against women, okay? But the amendment exempted the Masons, the Elks and the Moose, whoever they are, I don't know about the Elks and the Moose, because they can they were considered charitable organizations. Oh. So uh, very interesting. So what what uh, what what organization do you belong to, Dan? Oh, I belong to the Moose. <laughs> I know. <laughs> A moose. Oh well, I'm an elk, so take that. <laughs> mm. Isn't that like the isn't it like the raccoons? Are the squirrels? Are the squirrels? Um I, I don't know about the squirrels. Okay, so, Dan, the next distasteful characteristic mm. is atheism, and it states that a careful reading of Masonic literature will make it evident that the craft rejects the God of the Scriptures. Yes, uh, a lot is made of the uh, Masonic law that initiates must never be a stupid atheist. But it says here, a knowledgeable Mason observed, let us not be deceived. All atheists are not stupid. <laughs> well, well we, could, we could argue with that. Yeah, so, good. Because if you're an atheist and you believe that essentially you are God mm. because there's no greater power, then I think that would 
come under their... I think that's pretty stupid. It is, it mm. is, yes. I mean, uh, there's there's a difference between IQ and wisdom and, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of scientists, a lot of people that on the face of it might appear to be very, very smart, but, um, mm. yes. This is their get-out-of-jail-free card on allowing atheists into the lodge because, you know, they say that every lodge member must believe in God, the God mm. of his choice, mm. okay? And, and we know that their God is Lucifer, you know, the yes. grand architect of the universe and so on. But to say that, that the basic Masonic law requires initiates never to be a stupid atheist. Mm. So if you're a knowledgeable atheist, yes, okay, that's, that's acceptable, but we don't accept stupid atheists. So <laughs> what we do, we have a little test for you to do uh, to ascertain whether you are stupid or yes. not. Do you want to join the lodge? Yes, I do. Yeah, he's stupid. Get rid of <laughs> there you yeah. go. Yes. Um, and then a, another Masonic writer said, man is divine and his divinity is within himself. And yet another New Age writer, that New Age, that uh, Masonic publication, when we talk to God, we are talking to ourselves, for God and man are one and the same through the ties of love. Oh, so in other words, in no. other words, there really is no meaning to the term atheist, uh, so it becomes a meaningless term, according well, to these people. Well, really, if you boil it all down, atheism means that you do believe in God, but you just believe that you're God. Ah, that so you, you are God. Yes. Doesn't so if you believe that you are God, then you're not an atheist, according to this, um, according to this <laughs> definition, because God is within you. you that's see? right. That's right. There because well, God is within you because you yourself are God. That's right. That's so, what they say here. Yes. So you're within yourself. Yeah, because for God and man are one and the same through the ties of love. <laughs> the ties. Yes. So is how good is that? So I am God. I'm in myself. Mm. And I love myself, mm. you know. Yes. So, so what I should do is grab my bottom lip, pull it over <laughs> my head and swallow. <laughs> yes. And yes. I'll just disappear into the ether with myself and I'll love myself for all eternity and, oh, what a wonderful eternity that would be. <laughs> Imagine spending eternity with yourself. Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so the next, the next item of uh, distasteful characteristics is... Teacher of the world's children. So the Masons, they want to be the teacher of the world's children. And it states that a previously noted quotation by the wonderful, the charismatic Albert Pike mm. is important to recall. He said, quote, It is the province of Masonry to teach all truths, not moral truth alone, but political and philosophical and even religious truth. Yes, and of course, um, in in that sense, when when they say political as well and philosophical, it is as if the Freemasons give themselves permission to be a blank slate upon which the ideas of humanity and the history of humanity uh, is taught. In other words, the truth is whatever we say it is. Mm. In some ways, they make it up as they go, but in other ways, no, they're very organised. And in in fact, if you look at the approach from communism as an example, and I'm thinking specifically of Hungary at this point in time, around the around 1950, maybe. A little bit earlier. You know, when the Russians were, were going ballistic in, in Hungary, they specifically, again, targeted the youth, the secularisation of the schooling system. That is paramount to the success of these organisations. Communism, Freemasonry, all part of the, the Judeo system anyway, the Zionist system, as we alluded to earlier. Mm, so yes. get them when they're young, own their minds, and you have them for life. And that's a key reason why the world is the way it is today, because we're now second, third, fourth generation into this. 
where they've really taken hold of the schooling system in all countries yes and have completely secularized it absolutely as per their goals mm. okay dan so we're pretty much at the end of this show in terms of our discussion on the book we've covered the preface of the book which is called amazing discovery which we really have glossed over these mm. first the, the first two chapters and and the preface uh, an amazing discovery really was a discussion about the Supreme Court of America being stacked yes. by Freemasons for 30 years, 1970, sorry, 1941 through to 1971. It, it may seem to casual readers of the book, and certainly it seemed to me uh, a very odd place to start talking about the 30-year reign of Freemasonic Supreme Court judges in America, but um, that's for him what uh, started his investigation into the whole thing. So it kind of it kind of makes sense from that point of view. Okay, all right. Chapter two, the mind of masonry. You got any comments on that? Uh, yes, that really sets the scene, I, I guess, for the um, rest of the book because what it does do is it talks about the philosophical goals of masonry. It talks about the origins. It mentions Pike. It, it talks about their involvement in society at large, and in particular their attitude towards the Catholic Church. So, Dan, what do you think of this book so far? Uh, so far, I would say that um, you really have to read it a couple of times, as we've done, to really get the full impact of it. But I think so far Mr Fisher has uh, set the scene for how he intends to approach the book. It's, of course, written in four parts. One's called Understanding the Conflict, which is what we've covered. Part two is Target the Church. Part three is Target the State. And then part four is Targeting Men for the Fraternity. Yes. That should the, be interesting. The recruitment process. How about you? You know, this book is, uh, and we mentioned this in the last show, is the bibliography is just huge. So what I... So the book is not as intimidating as it looks. It's, <laughs> it's really, it's it's um, it's 362 pages, but um, 100 pages of that are just sources. So. That's correct. But what you do find, Dan, is as you're reading through it, I agree with you. To get the best out of it, you probably need to read it a couple of times. At least that's my opinion thus far Mm. because there's a lot of names, a lot of dates, a lot of information comes up. You are then directed to the bibliography to, to ascertain where that came from. The next chapter that we cover was going to be, uh, I think it's called Warring Target the Church. Uh, that's, that's part two. That, that's right. That's going to set us up brilliantly for Warring on the Church, chapter three. So stay tuned for that. And then, of course, the other one, chapter four, will be talking about the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. So uh, anyone who uh, who knows about uh, American history knows about this group called the Ku Klux Klan, wearing white hoods and everything. It's going to be interesting to cover that from the Masonic point of view. Mm. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you've found this show to be informative, helpful and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Dan. And I am Damo. May May God God bless you. you. Do you remember that Donald Trump speech where he goes, you know, you're going to be winning so much, you're going to be tired of winning. I was thinking of saying to that guy, you know what, we're going to talk about Jews so much, you're going to be tired of us talking about Jews. (laughs) 